If this were a normal year, I would have crisscrossed the U.S. a few times now, visiting my mom and brother in California and going to Houston for family gatherings like weddings, anniversaries, and birthdays. But it's not a normal year, and I've spent the last 10 months holed up in my apartment in New York City doing what little we're all able to do to keep up connections. I've been thinking about family a lot lately. This quarantine period has brought to light so many things about my relationships, especially relationships I have with some of my family members. It's already difficult to make room for all the different personality types in one family. Everyone comes to the table with shared or disparate traumas, experiences, expectations, and it's even more difficult when the digital connections are fraught. The worst thing we're seeing during this time is who our family members are at their core. We're all likely to have at least one experience in our lifetimes that lay bare the messy realities of our relationships. That time you're in the hospital and no one comes to visit, or when they forget your birthday for the 10th year in a row, or like me, when your father dies. The people who are there for you might not be family by blood, but because they were there when it mattered, they became family. And the ones that aren't, family included, have shown you who they really are and what they're capable of. We're all going through an experience like that now. The test is sheltering in place. If you can afford to stay inside, to keep yourself and others safe, that's where you should be. It's hard to watch people you care about pretend like there is no lockdown, because it's like they're saying they don't care about others. They don't care if their neighbors get sick, or if they bring COVID home to your elderly grandparents. Clarity can be a difficult thing. Having this knowledge of people is hard. So is the knowledge that when this is over, and I'm holding on to this being over one day soon, we'll have to forgive and forget that this is what they did during this time. I don't want to say in two years or ten that this pandemic is what caused a permanent rift between me and my family, because that would be unfair. How we act in this moment is a truth, yes, about who we are at our core, but it's also not. This is an unreal, unprecedented test that does have a moral aspect, i.e., do you go out when we all must stay home, if we can afford to, do you endanger others? Do you wear a mask? Do you do your part to mitigate infections and preserve your community, etc.? But also, aren't many run-of-the-mill moral failings during this time completely human? If people go outside, is it not because they, like all of us, have gone a little stir-crazy? And is that so bad? Sure, when it all adds up, but it's also so understandable. I mean, except for people who refuse to wear a mask when they go outside, because there's no saving them. I've had to have conversations with my family members about what they can and can't do. It's like a strange parallel universe sort of parenting. I've had many that have thankfully gone well, but that's not always the case. I'll say this, it's hard to see someone get sick, recover, and then go right back outside. So I'm thinking a lot about family right now. But a lot of us are. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but 
these kind of conversations are really important for healthy relationships. And if you can't have those conversations, then you kind of wonder, well, how healthy are your relationships to begin with? That was New York Times journalist and writer Sopan Deb, whose new book, Mistranslations, traces his journey reconnecting with his parents after years of estrangement. We'll be talking to him after the break. Be right back. Hey all, Nadia here. Just popping in to let you know that there are some sound issues in the interview portion of this episode. With the pandemic, we unfortunately had to give up our studio space and we had to use other tools. But the interview is still really good, and I hope it makes up for it. Okay, on to the episode. We're back, and I'm here with New York Times writer Sopan Deb, whose new book, Mistranslations, traces his journey reconnecting with his parents after being estranged from them for years. Thank you so much for joining us, Sopan. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was um, really fun reading your book. Uh, there were quite a few things that struck me throughout the reading, um, especially regarding the main premise about reconnecting with your parents. You wrote a lot about how it felt unbelievable and yet inevitable that you would simply not talk to them for as long as you did. Um, I thought there was something really interesting in that. In general, coming from a culture that really values family for good or for bad, both of those sides felt really relatable to me. Like I could understand the pain that would come from, that would lead you to like maybe not talk to your parents, but also that would lead to feeling bad about it. And I was wondering what it was like to write about that duality. You know, uh, writing mistranslations was equal parts cathartic and also very exhausting because it was the first time in my life that I ever, you know, um, confronted kind of, you know, the demons I felt and you know the the conflicts I felt about being South Asian. Um, so, for your listeners who might not know, the book tracks a year of my life as I try to reconnect with my estranged parents. And my parents were arranged to get married in the I think it was the seventies, and they had a terrible marriage, but they didn't get divorced because, um, as you know, South Asian culture frowns on divorce. And so, I grew up without knowing anything about them. Um, I didn't. I look when I started writing the book, I didn't even know where they were living. Um, I, I didn't know, um, you know, um, I didn't know, uh, you know, their birthdays, their ages or anything like that. And so I, it was, it was a very difficult thing to do to A, have these conversations with them and find them and B, learn about where they came from, where I came from. And um, I'm ultimately glad I did it. It was a very cathartic process in some ways. Yeah. You also said it's exhausting. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about that. Like, it sounds like it was multiple years building up to this point. And like, I would imagine feeling relieved, but like also trekking back through family history, bringing old stuff to light. Like, what was that experience like? Uh, it wasn't easy. Um, to your point, as has the years of building up, it was, you know, I was 30 when, when I started the process. Um, I'm 32 now. It was, uh, so it was 30 years worth of stuff, right? And so when we decided, you know, when I'm having these conversations with my father and my mother, uh, you know, my, my dad moved to India when I was 18 and he didn't tell anybody. He just, he just left. And so, you know, asking him, hey, why did you leave the country without telling anybody? Like, why haven't I seen you in 11 years? Those are difficult questions to ask, you know, especially in a culture that, yes, it, um, yes, it values family, but from my experience, it does not value communication, right? It does not value um or rather, it's a much lower priority, I should say. So, you know, 
all three of us, my mother, my father, and myself, we all had to put ourselves in um, uncomfortable positions and answer questions we're not used to answering and have conversations we're not used to having. And the lesson here for me was, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but these kind of conversations are really important for healthy relationships. And if you can't have those conversations, then you kind of wonder, well, how healthy are your relationships to begin with? Yeah, I was wondering what it was also like to apply your journalistic skills to these like these hard conversations with your parents. Like, I think there were multiple times in reading the book where you mentioned um, that like they really didn't want to maybe answer these questions or they didn't want to talk about these things that were really difficult. But you really pushed and you really got like you said something like, if I can you know ask questions to politicians on the fly that are hard hitting, why can't I ask my parents the same things? And was it? Did you ever think twice about doing that? No. Um, I, I, in fact, it was a very deliberate choice on my part. And the reason for that is I feel like whenever we see South Asian stories, you know, whether TV, books, or film, or whatnot, they're often from the point of view of aggrieved children of immigrants, right? It's about how, um, you know, my parents did this to me. And I want to have these conversations with my parents and as a journalist because it allows me to be detached. It forces me to look in the mirror and it forces me to be, be like, quote unquote, unbiased in, in coming at, in having these conversations with them. Um, if I had these conversations with them as the aggrieved child of immigrants that I felt like I was, um, then they get defensive, I get defensive, and how productive can you really be in that, in that kind of situation? But by having the conversation, I think, detached and interviewing them in, in a little bit of a dispassionate way, I was able to see, be a little bit more empathetic about, about the situation that they came from. And, and secondly, I think I was able to see my own flaws and look in the mirror. Because I think a process like this really requires you to be, um, it, requ it requires you to look inward. It really does. It requires you to hold a mirror to yourself and say, hey, what did you do here? What did you bring to the table? Or what didn't you bring to the table? And there, were, there was quite a bit as I learned throughout the book. Yeah, actually about that, the book begins with this screed about how memoirs ultimately just remembered experiences and that the stories told through the filter of memory bias, you know, how you remember things. And I was, I was curious about why you thought it was important to explain that. Um, and also if you were nervous at all that people that you wrote about might like object to your depictions of them. Um, I'll answer the second question first, which is, was I nervous about, because um, the book mostly focuses on my parents, um, was I nervous about how my mom and dad were going to react to the book? Yes. I mean, you're essentially, first of all, this is a culture that keeps a lot of things in. It's a very, you know, private, you know, private, you know, so doing something like this is pretty unheard of, right? Um, or, and it's very much frowned upon. Um, my parents read the manuscript of the book a year before it came in. I mean, the unedited manuscript, but, you know, and it was difficult. It was difficult for both of them to see these characterizations of them in print. Um, but ultimately, I think they understood what I was trying to do, but we had several difficult conversations. Um, and then you asked another question about, you know, why I felt the need to say, you know, memoirs are, this memoir is a little different because what makes a difference is that there's actually very little recall. Most of the book is based on recordings and notes that are, that all the conversations you see are exactly as they happen in real time. And that's the journalist in me coming in. I'm, I, you know, I try to be as much of a stickler for accuracy as I, as I 
physically can be. And so we spent a lot of time fact checking. We spent a lot of time making sure the quotes are correct. Um, but ultimately, even when you have everything in front of you, all the quotes, all the, the interpretations are going to differ from, from, from three different vantage points. So if my mother wrote her own version of mistranslations and my father wrote his own version of mistranslations, um, they would be different books. They'd be totally different inter interpretations of who was to blame and who was to, who was responsible for what, if that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of felt like the book was sort of an extended family counseling session that like, you know, without maybe like the, the mediator or the referee to kind of to flag interference and stuff, it kind of was like, I was really in awe of how you guys were able to have these hard conversations without someone there telling you how to phrase things. And it, it sort of sounded like there was a lot of work involved in getting each other to that point where you could share these things freely. And, and it also sounds like part of it was having the conversation, but then having the conversation about the conversation after they've read the draft. And like, I mean, I, I could really relate to that. I feel like it is really hard to talk to family members about grievances um, or any kind of uh, feelings that you have with them. But then you also have to do a lot of like sort of, I don't want to say ego management, but sort of emotional holding of each other. And yeah. that, that's actually really hard. And I feel like maybe we're not really, um, sorry, we're not really trained for that in a lot of ways. And um, well, I mean, if you think about it this way, it's much easier as humans to hold on to grudges than it is mm -hmm. to And it's much easier. And we as humans often, we think about, when we think about the world we live in, right? And you think about when you feel upset or annoyed or angry about something. Oh, uh, uh, my friend annoyed me today. She, he or she wasn't considerate to me. Um, this waitress or waiter got my order wrong. Uh, my mom is being overbearing about this. We rarely say, hey, what did I do to cause this? What is the cause of, of my mother's overbearingness or whatever, whatever, the, whatever it may be? We often, I mean, as, as, as a society, we just don't look inward very often. And so, so having these conversations with, with my parents, it forced all of us to you know, look inside ourselves. The problem is, is that not everybody has that ability. And certainly my mom, my dad, and myself, we all have very differing abilities to do this. And I think um, my parents were able to look inward, but like at very differing, differing levels. And that's what made the conversations very difficult, especially in the aftermath. Yeah, there was definitely a theme sort of throughout where like, and you, you've said this before, but like how if you had all written your own books about the situation, they would have all been very different. And like, I, I was really caught by like how your father really related a lot of what he felt like he had done as a father, like how he had succeeded and how he had failed and how that rubric was very different from your sense of success and failure. And how like you were somewhat applying a, a sort of a Western standard or like what you had seen growing up as like a marker of whether he was good as a father or not, or what he was good at and what he wasn't good at. Whereas for him, it was like, you know, you're in this world and you're here and you're, you know, you're doing well. And like, that's a mark of success. And right. I, I thought that that was really, it was like a very human moment because it's sort of like realizing that our big picture doesn't look like anybody else's big picture. And yeah, everyone sort of felt culpable for a part, like a portion of the relationship and how it had turned out. I thought that that was like, it was very moving to, to sort of see those portions where it was just like everyone kind of feeling bad <laughs> about how things had turned out. Um, well, you know, 
I think a big difference between myself and, and, and our parents' generation is, is, look, our parents, my parents, I'll speak for my parents, um, um, you know, they, 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 they came to survive, right? For them, survival was what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so when my parents came to this country, to the US, you know, they were worried about things like putting food on the table. I grew up in middle-class New Jersey, right? I didn't wake up every morning wondering if there was gonna be food on the table, right? I didn't, I didn't wake up, I, I had the freedom to think about what I want to do with my life. My parents really didn't. And I think that's a key difference in how we, our, our worldviews. So for my parents talking about feelings, you know, chasing your creative desires, those are, that's a, that's a point of privilege for that. For me, that was, you know, that was a calling. That's the, everyone gets to do that, right? So it's, 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 two, it's, two, very, it's two very differing worldviews based on where we come from. Yeah, there was also a note at the beginning of the story about how it wasn't meant to be applied to all South Asians, which reminded me of what the star of the show Never Have I Ever, Maitri Ramakrishnan, had to say on Twitter, that her experience was her experience. What's depicted in the show is one version of events or one way of experiencing things. And I wonder if, if this is because uh, <laughs> if you're trying to get ahead of a certain kind of blowback, if South Asians love to contradict proxies or because white people like to lump us all together like what was the 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 feeling behind including that uh well first of all is how i genuinely felt which is that this is not just a story for brown people nor is it the brown people story um yeah. oftentimes um I, I was worried that people you know non-brown people you know would, would be like oh that's not that story is not for me and I don't, I, I fundamentally don't think that's true. I think this story is for anyone who has a relationship with someone that should be better. That can be a coworker, a, a friend, uh, an acquaintance, whatever, a family member, whatever. And to the other point is this is not the Brown story. What I didn't want to do is, is give off this impression that every, you know, person that looks like me in the U.S. has this experience. Because part of the issue here is that often, because South Asian um, depictions in, in the West are still fairly rare. So every time there is one, there's this obligation that it presents the, all of the culture. And that's just not a realistic thing to ask for. And I didn't want to present this as that. This is not the Brown story. It's a Brown story. It's one person's story. Now, are there things that I think that I share with other kids of my generation? Yeah, I do. You know, because I, I, I know that because I've gotten a lot of letters since the, since the book came out saying as such. Do I think that every kid feels this way or every kid has this experience? No, in fact, obviously not. I just don't, I don't, I don't want someone who doesn't know that, who's not able to differentiate, to read this and say, oh, wow, like, you know, maybe every, every single, you know, brown, you know, arranged marriage should get divorced. I'm not saying that. And, and, and I don't want anyone to think that I am. It's just our, 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 our depictions are so rare that, that each one holds more weight about what it represents in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like how many pieces of a pie do we get? And then we realize that there's actually like more pies that we can all eat. It's kind of a sense of like the scarcity model uh, operating. Um, there's also like, um, you opened the book talking about uh, doing stand-up 
in a particular show that you're in. And uh, you're really, you're walking us through the set and you talk about how you're aware that you're trafficking in South Asian stereotypes for jokes that landed. And you said that you felt like you were playing the part of a brown guy on stage. Why do you think you leaned into this? Like what was so tempting about it? In terms of, do you mean, do you mean the, the stand-up or do you mean writing about it? No, uh, I think the stand-up for now. <laughs> um, it's a good question. The reason I leaned into it is that it was lazy and it was easy. Um, and it felt, it felt fake. It, it felt like I was playing, but, but it was easy. I was getting laughs, but it wasn't the right kind of laughs. You know, and there are a couple of jokes, you know, that I would make throughout a set, you know, before, you know, in my 20s that I felt pretty, that I still feel good about. Um, but I didn't have my voice yet. And the voice I'd had, I wasn't happy with. There's a lot of very obvious kind of low-hanging jokes about being brown. And they get laughs, but, you know, audiences, I think, can sense when you're being disingenuous. And I felt disingenuous. Um, now that that's the case for a lot of comics that start off, you know, it takes them years, people years. There's a reason that, you know, the best comics really honed their crafts and spent, spent days and day, years and years trying to figure out what is best for them and then evolving. Um, so it kind of made sense early on that I wasn't, that I wasn't, you know, uh, that, that I didn't, that wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, but it was just easy. It was just, it, was just, it was just me being easy, lazy, and unsure of myself. Do you think it was easy because in some ways comedy and other sort of creative industries or, you know, like, I would say even in media, having worked in media, that like, it's, it's, it tends to sort of platform and prioritize stories about identity that really give people a very easy vantage point to operate from. That makes sense. Like they want an unchallenging, compromised view of identity or culture or anything that's different from them because it's it's like you said, it's easy. And like in that way, like they almost tend to privilege that kind of story. Do you think that, that uh, has something to do with it? I, I don't know if it goes that deep. Um, I don't know if I internalize it to that level. Um, it was more, I mean, literally the way I'd write my material as you sit down at a computer or with a notepad or something and you go, okay, what is funny? What makes me laugh and why? And, um, and so that, that's how I'd write my jokes. And sometimes they would make me laugh, sometimes they wouldn't, you know? Um, uh, but, some, but, that, but what makes you laugh is also heavily influenced by the culture you take in, by the situation you grow up in. Um, so that's why some jokes are the product of their time and some jokes don't age well. And, you know, uh, and, and so certainly I'm sure there's some of that, you know, of what you're talking about, but I don't, I don't think that's something I was consciously aware of. There's also this um, taxonomy you use in the book where you sort of describe things as white versus brown or American versus brown. So you talk about uh, white parents versus brown parents, like, brown weddings, brown sides of weddings, brown family reunions. And it, it felt like anthropological, but also a little reductive. And I was wondering if it was challenging to walk that line for readers. Like, who did you think was gonna pick up the book and who were you speaking to when you did that? Um, who did I think I was gonna pick? I, 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 I never once thought about who was gonna pick up the book. I mean, I thought I wanted everyone to pick up the book in that I wanted it to be for everyone, but I never once thought about 
which who specifically would read the book because um i'm i'm proud of the book I think I, I I wouldn't change much in it if I could do it over again. Um, and at the end of the, and once you get to that point, it's out of your control. In the same way, like, you know, uh, you know, you can't control, you can only control what you do and how you react. You can't control how others react. So there's a lot of this out of my control once it's out there in the world. So I, I didn't think much about, you know, who was going to pick up the book. Um, as far as like the reductiveness of it, you know, some of that was, you know, in jest. You know, um, but as I said on the very first page of the book, this is not the story of all brown people, right? This is not a story just for brown people. So I, I, I feel like I tried to go out of my way to be as nuanced and as, you know, even, even in the parts where I, I say, so for example, I talk about um, at one point, I think I, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've, I've, I've gone through the book, but I think at one point I talk about um, white parents going on vacation um, and, and how a lot of them go to like Six Flags or, or you know, Sessing a Place or something and they're doing activities. I, I even think in those cases, I would add a line that said, you know, parenthetical, I said, this is not the case for everyone, you know. But sometimes you just use shorthand and, and hope that the reader doesn't hold it against you. And, you know, uh, and so I, 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 we, we really bent over backwards to be as nuanced and as, as, as many times as we had to qualify it we try to. Uh, now, did we, did we succeed at all that? I don't know. That's, that's for other people to judge. Yeah. Um, I was also really struck by the scene where you described being manhandled and handcuffed by the police during a Trump rally in 2016. And it was a really physical scene. Um, and reading it now, like after four years of him in the White House, after we've seen him villainize reporters, claim that the news that's not positive on him is fake, after he's unleashed federal officers into cities against Black Lives Matter protesters, like what's your take now on that? Um, you know, here's something I think about um, quite a bit when it comes to this. So in, in 2016, for your listeners that don't know, I, I was arrested and charged with, thrown to the ground by police um, out of nowhere covering a protest and I was arrested and charged with a felony of resisting um, the police. Um, thankfully, there were cameras on the whole thing. Um, and, and it clearly showed I didn't do anything wrong. It clearly showed the police. I still don't know to this day what the heck the police were thinking here. Um, when I got arrested and charged and, and it got out, it became this viral story. It became this huge thing. It went all around the world. A journalist got arrested. Uh, the, the president of CBS News put out a statement. Um, CBS News hired a very, uh, very expensive lawyer for me. And it still took two or three days for the charges to get dropped because the charges were BS. And the reason I bring all that up is, think about the privilege I had in getting arrested, having those resources behind me. I think about all the people that got arrested that night that didn't have any of that, that didn't have a viral, you know, you know, dozens and hundreds of journalists standing up and saying, this is bull. That, that didn't have a network president coming out and saying, this is bull. That didn't have, you know, people in India and Italy reading about this. What about the people that have to deal with this every day that don't have those resources, that don't, can't afford the $600 an hour lawyer that, the, that, that, that CBS hired for me? 
think about how how much they are um, what what a, what a what a what a deficit they though you know people like that are in it and that's something I thought I thought about quite a bit since then. So when all, all these protests are springing up since George Floyd and we're seeing journalists get arrested, blah blah blah, and people are shocked by it, I'm like, where have you guys? Where have you guys been? You know, um, um, think about the people that don't have those kind of resources, and and that's something that I think about quite quite often. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to read your book. Um, it was, this was a really great chat. Thank you so much, Satan. Thank you so much for having me. The Cardamom Pod is made by Kajal Magazine in partnership with Erios Network. Aziz Adib is our producer with help from Jivika Verma. Our music is by Tasneem from their EP, Just Before the World Ends. Until next time, keep an eye out for evil eyes. Powered by ACAST.